Jen here with a quick update for new listeners. Watch with Jen began its life solely on Patreon, and while that's still the first place I publish new episodes, all of which you can listen to as soon as they drop for as little as a dollar a month, once they're unlocked to everyone, you will find them available to listen to here as well. Just a heads up if you wonder why I talk about Patreon so much for the first few shows. Thanks for listening and happy movie watching. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. So we're back with the second episode, and before we begin, I'd like to give a couple of notes on the first one. Obviously, I want to give a huge thank you to those of you who listened to the show, shared information about it, and a big thanks to those who not only listened, but actually subscribed. That's amazing because I recorded this thing on the phone like you guys are on the other end. I'm sort of imagining it that way. So it's very low tech and I'm still learning. I thought maybe two people would sign up, but the fact that we hit 20 is just amazing to me. And I'm thrilled to have you all aboard and see what's going to happen to the show and to the future of it. Hopefully it'll keep improving and I will get better. Um, (laughs) But I want to thank you so much for the kind messages of support. You guys sent me the world's nicest emails and last week it was just amazing. It was also a really big week at Film Intuition because I posted the 2500th review database post. That's the reviews.filmintuition.com part of the website where I store all of the reviews I've written over the years, that 14 years. I think this version of the site has only been up since 2007, but I actually kicked it off in 2006 with a an original part of the site that I created for my baccalaureate program in college. And it was just sort of an experimental part of my class. Like baccalaureate program through Prescott College was self-designed study. I chose that on purpose because I love to challenge myself. I'm a total nerd. So I designed a very tricky curriculum of film analysis with different classes like neo-noir and French New Wave, female directors, that kind of thing. And I reached the female directors part of my curriculum. It was the fall of 2006. And I was noticing that there was a lack of information about female filmmakers. Very few books had been written on the subject. So I was also noticing on the web was there was some big drought on the topic as well. So I created the site originally, and that's why the title sounds like Female Intuition. It's Film Intuition. Just to give a shout out to female talent and support it. And then, and so it began like that. And then quickly thereafter, I was finishing up a neo-noir class and was very inspired by all of the movies I was watching there. So the first several posts on the site were basically female filmmakers and neo-noir movies. So it was a really weird combination. So it was probably good that I sort of branched out quickly and started to cover everything. I'm embarrassed by those early posts. I think they're probably like two or three paragraphs. Some are ridiculously long-winded, I mean long-winded sentence-wise. Some are a little too academic. You'll see citations for no reason, except when you realize that I was writing it for class. So I'm always 
embarrassed by like the early years of film intuition as I was learning and trying new things. But every once in a while, I'll reread something and be impressed by it. A few times, I'll go in and fix quick little typos. Sometimes, you know, you just probably turn beet red and are like, why are people reading these still? But I appreciated you staying with me and continuing to check back over the years as the site grew and grew and grew. So this week was a pretty big celebration of the fact that it did finally evolve into something, what it is now. And without your readership or support, there's no way I would still be doing this. I would probably be, I don't know, annoying my friends more than usual with my thoughts on film and just probably devoting my energies to other creative writing endeavors, which I still do. But film is my first love. And one of the things that I really enjoy about writing about movies is I might go into it thinking I have all of my thoughts squared away. I know exactly what I want to say about this film. You start typing and you realize, wow, I really loved it more than I thought I did or really disliked it or oh my god was that misogynistic or you don't even realize where you're going until you start typing. You get kind of into the zone on some of these anyway. (laughs) Of course writing is writing so some days stringing a few words together is a huge chore and then other days you grab a pen, barely get in front of a notebook or go to the keyboard and things just fly out of you so fast that you finish it almost as soon as you start. And so the fact that you guys connect with my scattered random thoughts on movies at all will never not be inspiring to me. And I just want to thank you for visiting the site, reading my words, and also conversing with me all the time on Twitter. It's always fun, entertaining, and eye-opening as well. So just want to say thanks again. It was a big week for a few reasons. Pretty soon I will be running a poll here on Patreon to inventory what streaming services you guys use to make sure that I'm going through those when I look for some of my recommendations. So be on the lookout for that. I will also be adding some letterbox lists as promised. I had a few people request some follow-up on the films, like maybe a bonus episode where I can go into more depth on a few of them, and I'm definitely open to that, especially the ones I'm going to introduce to you guys today. Some of today's picks are big favorites of mine, so I would welcome the chance to dig a little deeper and look for gold because I do think that there's a lot here. I'm not quite sure the format that'll take, if I'm just going to post something where we can all share or record an episode. I'm also planning again in the future to hit up some friends for some guest cameos, so be on the lookout for that. And friends, please don't mute me or block me before I ask for a favor. No, I'm just kidding. But So I'm not quite sure the format that'll take. But without further ado, let's dive into the movies because we have some really good ones this week. A few years ago, I contributed a list of favorite underrated thrillers for the wonderful site 
Rupert Pupkin Speaks. Shout out to Brian if you're listening. And one of the thrillers that I recommended, it's one I don't shut up about. If you know me in real life, I'm sure I would have made you watch it by now. Um, But it's The Leading Man from 1996. Director John Dwegan, he helmed Sirens, Flirting, another really good underrated one called Lawn Dogs with Sam Rockwell that I liked a lot growing up. But The Leading Man is a really inventive thriller. One of the reasons, well, I think there were several why it didn't really catch on, is that it was first made in 1996 over in England. It took two years to come over here. And by the time it did, I don't know that John Bon Jovi, who was in it, was like in the zeitgeist anymore. But I also think one of the big reasons that it probably didn't attract as much attention as it should have is that people just watched it and had no idea how to categorize this one. It's a dramatic thriller with twinges of dark comedy and psychological suspense. So I think, again, one of the big reasons that it did fly under the radar is because nobody could figure out precisely how to classify the work or pitch it to an audience. But I say forget about fitting it into a neat little box and just sit back and enjoy the ride because it's a hell of a good one. John Bon Jovi was his first film as an actor. He plays an American actor who got caught in the bed of the wrong studio boss's wife. You don't want to piss off the studio boss that he did. So he goes to England with his tail between his legs and does a play written by a hot playwright named Felix, played by Lambert Wilson. Felix has a few problems of his own. He's also in a love triangle. He's been married to his beautiful wife, Anna Galena, for several years. They have two children, if I remember correctly. But he's deeply in love with the woman he's having an affair with, Sandy Newton, who is an actress in his play. And he befriends Robin, played by John Bon Jovi. They make a gentleman's wager. It's an idea that John Bon Jovi pitches to him. And Felix is in such dire straits, so desperate that he takes him up on it. Robin says in order for his wife to have a little bit of dignity because he's jilting her, that he will seduce Felix's wife and help get her off of his back, so to speak. He also kind of just slides it in there that it won't be that big of a chore because his wife is a beautiful woman. And Felix maybe doesn't think of the danger signs. I mean, he's a selfish character all around. He does wind up taking him up on this offer. Of course, Once it gets underway, he thinks there is no way my wife is going to fall for this guy. But does Robin have his own agenda? Does he have something up his sleeve? A gun comes into events. What is the gun for? It gets a little Hitchcockian, a little bit of an erotic thriller tinge to it. But it stays on the dramatic romantic keel pretty much through the whole rest of the film. And it's a blast. I I love it. And I can't wait for you guys to check it out as well. It's on Tubi, which is T-U-B-I. 
it's a streaming service that is for free. So unfortunately, there are ads, hopefully not too annoying ones, that helps you watch the movies for free on their site. It's also an app. And it's available on Firestick and a few other places like that. So I hope that you guys will enjoy the movie and can't wait to hear back. So give me your thoughts. Jump on my Twitter, reply and leave me, oh my gosh, I hated that. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, leave me some messages here on the episode, on Patreon or whatever, and we can start a conversation on some of these. I'm trying to figure out, again, the best way to do this. But I couldn't not recommend this one because it's such a good movie. So I really hope you enjoy it. In Peter Biskin's Down and Dirty Pictures, which chronicles the rise of Miramax and independent film, Alison Anders tells a great story, as she always does. She tells amazing stories about the time when she tried to date Quentin Tarantino. I believe they had met at Sundance. They were all in the same class of 92, I think it was, for Reservoir Dogs, her movie Gas Food Lodging, and anyway, I think they had met, started to hang out, and couldn't get out of the friend zone, or he didn't do anything, and it became a little weird, like they were just kind of comparing notes, or hanging out he never like made any kind of overtures and so she gave up on that but one thing she did talk about was his frustration with the fact that Martin Scorsese who he looked up to had um, not only invited her over for dinner but had made her lasagna and so there was some intense jealousy there which might have been why things didn't work out between them of course any female writer or filmmaker or anything knows, as I do, that sometimes dating somebody in your field is tricky to begin with. I've always had kind of better luck with musicians or artists or people who do something different. If they're a writer, it has to be like a different type of writing. I'm sure, of course, there are exceptions to the rule, and I know of many, but it can be kind of a challenge. Ego gets in the way, and I've always loved that story between Allison and Quentin and what could have been but would never be because of Tarantino craving that lasagna, I guess. But anyway, the bond between Martin Scorsese and Allison Anders expanded into the making of my favorite Anders film, Grace of My Heart, from 1996 as well. It's available on Stars right now. The film was co-edited by Thelma Schoonmacher. And if you know anything about Thelma's work, you know that she really does not collaborate with others besides Martin Scorsese very much. So that in itself is a big deal. It's a wonderful film starring Scorsese's then girlfriend at the time, Ileana Douglas. I love Ileana Douglas. She's one of my favorite underused actresses. I think she has tremendous range and unfortunately is not called upon much. This film was a perfect showcase for her. She plays Edna Buxton, a steel heiress who wins a musical talent contest. She records a demo and is told it was 1958 that they were not hiring girl artists at the time and not getting signed girl singers, I should say, is the phrase that they use. We're 
not in vogue with the rise of Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and Jerry Lee Lewis. So she winds up becoming a songwriter because she's very talented and works in New York City's famed Brill Building. She works with girl groups. A lot of historical inspiration is in the film. You can see some of the characters and know immediately who Anders was probably basing them on. As we go through the years into the 60s, she winds up heading out for California and is at the forefront of the California sound that recent moviegoers got to experience in Echo of the Canyon. There's romantic subplots, a personal arc that goes through the whole film, a very strong female-centric through-line, of course, and it's just tremendous, honestly. I think it's it's easily my favorite Anders film. I love a lot of her work. I would say Gas Food Lodging and Things Behind the Sun, which I'm going to warn you if you seek out, is a very hard watch, but it's a necessary one. Both Gas Food Lodging and Things Behind the Sun are available on Criterion right now, and I'm thrilled about that. Border Radio is good as well. She co-directed that with some uh, fellow USC students. But I think this is her tour de force. It has such a good cast. Matt Dillon, John Turturro, Bridget Fonda, you name it, they're in it. Incredible music as well. The Elvis Costello song that was sadly more popular than the film, God Give Me Strength, was from this movie. Ileana lip syncs throughout the film. I heard she did her own singing, but I guess they brought somebody else on. But the music itself is just so good. I love the era of music to begin with. I grew up listening to my mom and dad's records. They had very diverse taste in music. My dad was kind of more into the California sound. So I grew up with a lot of the Beach Boys albums. And there's a really interesting Dennis Wilson subplot that Matt Dillon brings to life in this and it's so moving anyone who's seen A Star is Born and knows the story of Dennis Wilson knows exactly where it's headed but it still hits you and it's great and of course my mom loved the singer-songwriters and also Motown between the two of them I had kind of an interesting overview of the 60s And then, of course, I was that weird kid who later discovered on my own the singer that neither of them was super fond of Bob Dylan, but that's a whole other story. But this one is great for anyone who really likes 60s music. And if you like biopics, I think this is a wonderful place to start. It's also Women's History Month, so if you're looking to expand your knowledge of female filmmakers you really need to check out Grace of My Heart. I think it will inspire you to look up more from Alison Anders and the range of female talent we have behind the camera. One of my favorite things to do when I analyze a movie is to look at the director's filmography and to see what attracts them as a storyteller. The careers that always seem to bring out the inner detective in me the most are the ones that when you look at them movie one has seemingly nothing to do with movie two movie three's out of left field movie four is like did they just give that to him what is the plot but then when you start looking closer if you watch them back to back 
or you actually break down the building blocks of the various films, you discover what it might be about those titles that attracts them. I've enjoyed doing it with directors like Jonathan Demme and Stephen Frears, and especially Michael Winterbottom, who is one of our greatest filmmakers, but like Stephen Frears, is totally unsung. People always watch his movies and usually give the credit to the actors, which is fitting. They're always great. But Winterbottom, like Frears, is kind of being left out of the process. And I've started to appreciate him more and more. He's made everything from Thomas Hardy adaptations to biopics. 24-Hour Party People is phenomenal. Rent it. He's also made existential comedic journeys with his 24-Hour Party People star Steve Coogan and wonderful Rob Brydon, who I love. The two men and their dueling Michael Caine impersonations in the Trip series. It's kind of the middle-aged British buddy movie answer to the before Sunset, Sunrise, Midnight trilogy. And he embraces some of those themes that we see in the Trip series in our third recommendation for the week, which, shock of all shocks, did not come out in 1996, but it's actually the newest film I've recommended. It came out last year. It was called The Wedding Guest. It is now playing on Showtime. Drop everything and watch it. Dev Patel, who is one of our great actors of his generation right now, basically shows that he could be the next James Bond in this movie. In the beginning, he travels from Britain all the way to Pakistan with a stack of passports. We don't know what is going on for a good chunk of the beginning. We watch as he slowly drives to a Punjabi wedding and... He acquires weapons and duct tape, and we're getting more and more apprehensive as we watch him. He also procures multiple getaway vehicles. Each passport has a different alias. He's introducing himself to people with a different name. When he finally gets to the wedding, he crosses paths with the bride in a burst of violence. And then the two of them wind up on this sort of tour of India. And... Until the aftermath of everything that had happened earlier in the film starts catching up with him and growing increasingly complicated. My one big issue is the first half is pretty quickly paced. The second half kind of, it's more languorous and it's beautiful, but it's a slight letdown from the first But overall, it's still just so good. The actors are great. Their chemistry leaves a little something to be desired, but they're both just individually so interesting that you keep watching and you trust in Winterbottom's power as a storyteller that he will get you and the plot where it needs to be, and he really does. Described as an Eastern Western by Michael Winterbottom or Antonioni meets Wim Wenders meets Clint Eastwood. It's a Western turned road movie. The one thing that this has in common with the other pictures is Winterbottom's interest in the way that humans connect to one another in unusual circumstances, especially on foreign lands, and how friendships form, how you're lonely. Things are all heightened 
when you're in a different land and you either don't speak the language or you're an outsider. This comes through in the trip series, which on the surface seems like it's just going to be a great comedy, but then also has hints of melancholy, which drift in, which I love. And this kind of continues on that path for Winterbottom. I reviewed this via a screening link last year. I always get a kick out of those because sometimes you get them and you see your name or your email address or your phone number watermarked through the film as you watch the entire thing. So it's always great, you know, when you're watching a gorgeous man like Dev Patel, who even my dad has kind of a weird thing for. I always tease him and my stepmom does as well. But It's always wonderful when you see your name or your mark, so to speak, show up on the screen as Dev Patel or Brad Pitt or just some beautiful human being walks in. You're like, you know, I guess they're mine now. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, he is really good in this film. I've been a big fan for years and he just seems to be getting better and better. And it's a shame that Wedding Guest did not catch on. I liked it so much. I remember I watched it on a Friday and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then Sunday had somebody over and immediately ran cords from like my bedroom computer down the hall into the family room. And I'm like, you know, sit right there and we're going to watch. And we did. Yeah, I'm, I'm the cord runner of the group of people that I know. So people are always joking with me about my tech nerdiness. My mom even calls me Miss HDMI because sometimes she'll call and check in like, what are you doing? And I'll tell her, oh, I'm just running cords from this place to the other but yeah but for Dev Patel you know I'm gonna run cords all day it's fine and I think you will agree if you give this one a shot it's not only on Showtime if you don't get Showtime which right now how are you not watching the last season of Homeland but if you don't get it you can also rent it through any online retailer because it's new enough it's on all of them and It's worth it. So it'll be really interesting to see your reaction to this one. And whether or not you're thinking, you know, boy, when Daniel Craig is out of the picture, they could just call Dev Patel and he can be our next James Bond. The fourth film is one that I think some of you guys will be a little bit more familiar with. It's The Station Agent, which came out in 2003. It is now playing on HBO. It's from writer-director Tom McCarthy. McCarthy was an actor who became a filmmaker. He's directed since uh, The Visitor, which is also excellent, as well as Win Win and Spotlight. This is his first film. He actually wrote the script specifically for the actors involved, which are Peter Dinklage, Patricia Clarkson, and Bobby Cannavale. He shot it on the cheap in just 20 days. And the film went on to play at Sundance, and he won the Audience Award, the Special Jury Prize, and the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award. The film became a word-of-mouth hit. I think it should have become like a Little Miss Sunshine or a once-sized hit, but unfortunately that wasn't in the cards. I remember personally when I received the invite to it, weighing whether or not I even wanted to go. I think I can almost do the plot summary I received verbatim. It said something like, 
a train-loving dwarf inherits a train station and meets an aggressively friendly hot dog vendor? Like, I'm serious. I think that was the summary that was going around to press and audiences at the time. So it really didn't seem like something I wanted to just you know, hit the road and go see, but I decided to take a chance, and I'm so glad I did. The screening I went to at the old Camel View here in Scottsdale, Arizona, before they closed it down and now blended it together with the one in the mall, which is still nice, but it's in the mall. It doesn't have a mural. It doesn't have the same art house feel. I miss that one. I saw so many cool screenings there. I worked at film festivals there. And for the station agent, Bobby Cannavale was actually in attendance. And I had a little bit of an embarrassing run-in with Cannavale. I watched the movie and I loved it. And when I was coming out to go use the restroom quickly in between the film and the Q&A, as soon as I closed the door on the theater, somebody in a baseball hat, like a young, I mean, good-looking guy, 20s or whatever, nondescript-looking started to do sort of the Joey on Friends type greeting to me, like, hey, how you doing? And then all of a sudden, like, so what did you think of the movie? And I'm keep in mind, I'm like, just leaving the theater, trying to hurry back and get back so I can watch this Q&A and thinking, you know, dude, please, I'm just trying to leave me alone. So I'm just like, it's good and kept walking. And then when I came back in the theater, Of course, the dude I ran into was Bobby Cannavale, and he was up there already starting his Q&A and doing his introduction and being just, you know, effortlessly charming. The whole audience is all caught up. And he saw me return to my seat because unfortunately it was like probably in the 11th row. It was actually really crowded. And I think I was probably beat red. And he just sort of pointed right at me and waved his finger and then laughed. And so, yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. But yeah, anyway, it was a really fun Q&A. I felt bad because in Scottsdale, we do have some well-meaning but older patrons who to use the polite term, are from a different time. So some of the questions they were asking him about his ethnicity, and when he said, you know, he was Cuban, do you play baseball? And it was a little bit embarrassing, but he was very sweet. A couple of the older women hit on him, and he played up on that, and it was a really good Q&A. But the film itself is an incredible ode to friendship, especially finding common ground where you least expect it. I'm a big sucker for those films where people you wouldn't consider putting together or maybe wouldn't look twice at are suddenly thrown together and then find that they understand one another maybe better than other people have so far in their life. Those movies always kill me. Uh, I guess you could say this is maybe the indie type companion piece to something like And As Good As It Gets. The station agent is on a nice, simple scale. Peter Dinklage, one of the most charismatic actors we have, just leading man looks, one of the best voices. I always miss those old movie star Bogarty voices that we just don't have anymore. So whenever I cross an actor that has it, like Ben Mendelsohn, I just, you know, get a little bit obsessed. And Peter Dinklage, of course, has it and uses it like a weapon of charm, essentially. And in the film, he plays a dwarf who leaves the big city. He inherits a train station. And 
sure enough, does encounter the aggressively friendly hot dog vendor and become friends. But that's kind of underselling everything and also cheapening it a little bit. Patricia Clarkson is an artist who's going through a bit of a marital crisis. And Bobby Cannavale is definitely the comedic relief. And the three of them are kind of thrown together in this small town. Michelle Williams is in it, as well as uh, the cute librarian who has a little bit of an attraction to Dinklage. And it's one of those movies that when you see it, and you will love it, even if at first you're kind of wondering what you're watching, you will recommend to other people. I actually showed it in a screening series I hosted over in Scottsdale, years ago, years after I first saw the movie, I had intended to show something different. And because it was a public performance, there were rules on what we could show. So I had to visit the website and I can't remember what I had intended to show, but either we didn't have a good turnout for it or it tied in with something in the news and we needed to change it at the very last minute. So I looked at the list and saw the station agent on there. I was like, screw it. We're watching the station agent. So I walked in and I just told the audience who, again, was mostly sweet, gray haired and very curious. One of the best audiences like I've had. Uh, I just told them to trust me, put it on and it became the most popular movie I think I've shown and hosted in all my years. I guess, I think there might have only been like 15 people there. I don't know what event we were coinciding with, but like nobody was there. But it was the most talked about, I guess. Librarians on the upper floor were like, what is this movie you showed about a dwarf? People keep asking for the dwarf gen movie. And so if I'm known for anything in Scottsdale, I guess it's the dwarf gen movie. And it became one of the more checked out DVDs in Scottsdale Public Library. So I'm very proud of that. Hopefully I made up for snubbing Bobby Cannavale by helping it become pretty popular in Scottsdale. And it is one that is sure to stay with you after you finish it. It's a nice sleeper. It kind of reminds me of the cool indies I grew up with in the 90s. And I really hope you agree. So enjoy The Station Agent. Okay, our final movie for the day is one that I really hope that you check out selfishly because I've only ever encountered one person outside my circle of friends who's even seen the movie. That is crime writer Jed Ayers. Hello, Jed. But besides that, every time I've mentioned easy money, people will say, that sounds awesome. I'm going to check it out. And then you never hear back, which I'm going to admit, I get told to watch a lot of movies and some of them I'm interested in and some of them I'm not. Also, I have a list like three miles long. So when people tell me to check something out, sometimes it does take a while. But this one, I really want you to check out. It's on Vudu for free, which is V-U-D-U. It's also on Tubi, again, for free, which is T-U-B-I. Both of those sites are ad-supported, so I hope they're not the most obnoxious ads in the world, and I hope they go quickly. I've watched some of the ones on Vudu, and I didn't find them too intrusive. They sort of cut in after, like, the first act, maybe 15 minutes or so, and then you see, like, an ad or maybe three really quick ones and it cuts right back and you get another 15 minutes or something like that. 
So it wasn't too horrible, and it's definitely worth it for easy money, which is known as Snabba Cash in Sweden, where it was made by Daniel Espinoza in 2010. It stars Joel Kinnaman from The Killing, who, I mean, who doesn't love Joel Kinnaman? Everybody, I think, got a crush on him in The Killing, and this movie is no exception. He kind of does this great thing of straddling between, like, good guy and bad guy, and, you know, it's all kinds of hot. And in this one, he plays a poor college student named J.W., who likes to pose as a wealthier student, rub elbows with the upper crust. In his dorm room, he has like cutouts from GQ magazine of clothing and different ensembles he tries to wear. He's always trying to present himself as something above his station, to use like a Jane Austen-y kind of word, but that's essentially what he's doing. He has a crush on a beautiful well-to-do girl, and spends time with her clique. At the same time, he's getting involved in their wealthy world of privilege and somewhat assholery. He's also finding himself getting involved with the fast money, high risk world of selling cocaine and organized crime. Easy Money is the first of three Easy Money films. I think the second one is probably the best. It might be The Godfather 2 of the trilogy, but they're all good, so do check them out. The series was written by Jens Lapidus. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, so I hope it's not too much of a stretch there. He was a criminal lawyer who became a crime writer. I mean, who doesn't love that? He's learning from his clients and thinking this would make a hell of a good novel, and he did it. And it became the Stockholm Noir Trilogy. Warner Brothers holds the American remake rights to the film. At one point, it was supposed to star Zac Efron, who is a good actor. I definitely was too old for his high school musical fandom, so I only know him for some of the things he's been in, but I still think, yeah, we can do it maybe a little bit better. He's probably, I don't know how old Zach is right now, but he's probably a little bit too old for it. But the coolest thing is we are going to see some easy money in the future, so maybe I'll be able to leave Jed and my friends alone and bother some other people about it for a change, because Snobba Cash is going to be a new Netflix original series that's going to continue the adventures of JW and the entire ensemble. Can't say anything without giving anything away if it's going to follow up with the third film because a lot of people die throughout the trilogy so that'll be interesting or if they're going to go back in time in order to show us more of their lives but I'm looking forward to seeing where they go with it and I think it'll be a lot of fun. I'm really hoping that you check out Easy Money I've given you two places to do that if you're very opposed to ads, and I totally understand. You can also rent it. It's available pretty much at all the online retailers. It's also available in DVD. You can get it through DVD Netflix or purchase it if you're so inclined. But I think once you start the Easy Money series, you're going to find yourself quickly grabbing the next two and seeing where they take you. 
So that wraps up this week's five recommendations. I hope a few of those were appealing to you. I know that the station agent might have been pretty familiar to some of you. It's become a popular movie among indie-loving film buffs, and it did take on a new wave of enthusiasm after Peter Dinklage started appearing and winning awards for his tremendous work on Game of Thrones. But it's been 17 years, so I wanted to give it another shout-out as this generation might be new to it. I also hope that you enjoyed this week's storytelling approach. I wanted to, based on some feedback, open it up a little bit, not tell you the entire plot of the films, but give you a little bit of insight into my experience with them, or maybe why they're of interest or should be. And feel free, as always, to give me any feedback. You can reply here on Patreon, jump over to Twitter, send me an email via my site. Whatever way you're comfortable with is fine. And again, I just want to say thank you for listening to me ramble about movies. It's my love and... I also really enjoy sharing them with all of you. So I hope you have a great, safe week out there. Be on the lookout for a future poll about streaming services. And until then, you can find me on social. This is Jen Johans. Thanks again for joining us, filmintuition.com, on this week's Watch with Jen.